Welcome to Canada and the World podcast. I'm your host, Besma Momani, professor here at the Balsley School of International Affairs and the University of Waterloo. Join me as I take you along in discussions with academics, journalists, and experts looking at what's going on in the world today. So welcome, everybody. I have three fantastic guests here today. I have Usman Diallo. Usman is a PhD candidate here at the Balsley School of International Affairs and Wilfrid Laurier, where he focuses on researching policy interventions in West Africa. I have Nadej Kampare. Nadej is currently also a BSIA postdoctoral fellow working with me. Yay! And before this, she was a research analyst at the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research and a SHRC postdoctoral fellow. Her area focuses in analyzing the governance measures in the oil and gas and mining industries in Africa. And last but not least, I have Abdesis Isa, or Abdi, who is a PhD student in the Global Governance Program at the BSIA and Wilfrid Laurier in the field of conflict and security. His research interests are security governance and peacekeeping operations, also in the Horn of Africa. Three fantastic experts. And for all of you out there who are looking to hire an awesome professor in the field of African studies, these are three rising wonderful stars that you should search out. Okay, now that's my plug there. Let's talk about what's happening in Mali. That obviously is an area of Great turmoil. Canada has an active role in the Mali operations. So break it down for us, Usman. Uh, what are we doing in Mali? How big is our contingency? What is our role? And why are we there? So thank you for having me uh, here, Besma. Canada was part of the uh, UN peacekeeping mission and is still part of the UN peacekeeping mission uh, MINUSMA in Mali. So Mali has been experiencing an insurgency since uh, 2013 and before that there was a civil war opposing Tuareg secessionists in the north allied with uh, militants associated with Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb. And in January 2012 there were the first attacks against the Malian positions in the north. So quickly uh, with the uh, disaffection of part of the army there was a coup d'etat against the constitutional government. And in the ensuing week, uh, the rebels declared the independence of the uh, northern part of Mali, which is constituted of the regions of Timbuktu, Kidal, and Gao, and declared the Republic of Azawad, which was a dream that they uh, wanted to achieve since the country's independence in 1960. But what happened in the later months became more complicated as their former allies, the uh, Ansardine and Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, quickly uh, overrun their positions and took control, complete hold of the uh, northern region of Mali and almost two-thirds of the country and they and, uh, were governing it in an uh, Islamic fashion. Northern Mali became an Islamic state. When these rebels and insurgents tried to move south later in the uh, in December 2012 and January 2013, there was some kind of attempts by the economic community of West African state in which from which in which Mali is part to, to, to manage the situation but uh, it was the intervention of France that changed the game in January 2013. So since then we have a UN peacekeeping mission in July 2013, but the insurgency has spread over beyond the northern regions and you have regular attacks in the south in areas where the rebels were never, that were never governed by the rebels. So if I may, I just want to recap, but also ask quick questions here. So there is a rebellion movement in the north called the Tuaregs. Are the Tuaregs ethnically different than the, the, let's say, center and south of Mali, is this an ethnic division or is it also an ideological one? Because as you said, the Tuareg do want to, or the rebels here, are very much, you know, on the spectrum of Islamists, quite extreme 
in their interpretation. And so there's obviously going to be an ideological difference in, in sort of the kind of government that they want to see. But is there also overlay that an ethnic component to this? There is an ethnic component, but it doesn't explain the dyna- all the dynamics of the of the rebellion in Mali. I think that when you look at the situation, the different Tuareg rebellions that have been happening in Mali since 1960, it is more an issue of nation building and state building that is one of the lingering issues of the country's decolonization. Because you had since 1990 with the country's democratization, you had the third Tuareg rebellion. There was one in 1962, just after the country's independence, and when the authorities were deploying their uh, apparatus in the northern regions, and a second one in 1990, when uh, Tuareg rebels moved from Libya to try to establish a Tuareg state in northern Mali. But since the early 2000s, you have an Islamist presence, like a jihadist one, and that is one of the offshoots of the Algerian civil war. So the group Mont Salafist pour la Prédication et le Combat occupied part of northern Mali, the border region with between Mali and Algeria since 2000, and they became Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb in 2006. Have so they it- defected to ISIS? Because we've seen a lot of Al-Qaeda types uh, move to ISIS, and you know, both of them become, frankly, franchise movements of terrorist organizations around the world. Has this happened as well? This has happened in Mali, but it is it is very uh, murky because uh, you have the Islamic State in the Greater Sahara, which is composed of some of the uh, former commanders of the uh, Al Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, pledging allegiance to the Islamic State. But mm-hmm. the whether the Islamic State has accepted that allegiance is uh, very questionable. Of course, and we've seen that time and time again as as ISIS Central has sort of you know broken down in Raqqa, for example, and now you start to see all these franchises kind of on their own, right? They don't have an HQ, a headquarter, like, for example, Al-Qaeda does in Afghanistan. So it's become very interesting dynamics in the jihadist movement. Okay, great. Maybe then I'm going to turn to Abdi to tell us why are, why is Canada in Mali? So I think Canada's uh, interest in getting involved in the Mali mission really stems from this desire to be back on the international stage. I think we can all think back to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau when he first came on the scene and he was uh, talking about Canada's back. That was a signal mature uh, foreign policy commitment. And I think this also stems from a long-term vision of being back onto the Security Council. Uh, and I mean, if we think about it generally, Canada has been a peacekeeping nation. Canada has always prided itself on being a country that's willing to support international peacekeeping missions, has a strong supporter of the United Nations and the sub-regional organizations. Uh, so for Canada, I think there's a lot of political, but also geopolitical long-term interests involved here. And also generally, there is a moral commitment to ensuring that uh, in places where people are often uh, suffering the most uh, terrible conditions and that there's crises that are spilling over into uh, numerous regions, that Canada can be a country, especially while a lot of our neighbors and a lot of the other countries in the world are stepping back. So a lot of the political reasons there sometimes do tie in with the moral and historical reasons. That's great. And so how many troops have we contributed? How big is our commitment? So Canada has deployed as part of Operation Presence 250 troops in Mali, mainly based in uh, Gawo, Camp Castor. And these troops are mainly uh, doing support missions as a UN peacekeeping troop, MINUSMA, by uh, transporting troops and assuring medical evacuations, which are technical and logistical issues that often plague those UN peacekeeping missions. So Canada has uh, replaced Germany, which was providing that. And since Operation Presence will not be renewed at the end of July 2018, the uh, Canadian contingent in the MINUSMA will be replaced by Romanian troops. And also uh, the, these highly specialized uh, contingent groups, uh, especially the helicopters, it's also a desire to not put boots on the ground, to not put Canadian forces in harm's way, but also to have an added value to the existing peacekeeping mission. Uh, so Canada does have a lot of uh, interest in ensuring that they can provide where they, you know, where they can, uh, but also in ways that are impactful, but also extremely needed. So Nadej, let me turn to you. What do you think we need to do in the peacekeeping operations 
as you see this sort of standing back, you know, obviously Canada's committed some limited assets. I mean, 250 peacekeeping troops is not a lot, but it's not nothing for Canada. It's, I think, one of the, the bigger contingencies of our peacekeeping missions out there. And uh, for all of those listeners who think of us as being this great contributor to UN peacekeeping, that's a myth that's kind of very passe. We did so maybe in the 60s and 70s. We're certainly moving away from that. But as you see what's happening in Mali, what do you think are some of the security responses that need to be thought of from a broader perspective. Thank you very much, Besma, and thank you for having me today. I would say that there's a wider structural issue here. There's a bigger political economy landscape that we have to take into consideration when talking about the issue of Canada in Mali, and I think it actually goes wider to Canada in the Sahel region, specifically the main five Sahelian countries that are Burkina Faso, Mali, Mauritania, Niger, and Chad, who have actually formed the G5 Sahel uh, since 2014. And these countries have formed because in the northern part of a lot of these regions, there's growing terrorist jihadist groups that are destabilizing those countries. Specifically, uh, what has been quite interesting since 2014 is the case of Burkina Faso, which has been previously very, very secure to the point of obviously being ignored in the media, in the literature, whether it's academic or policy. Since 2014, and especially since 2015, there's been a huge growing insecurity in the region. And I think what's interesting is to actually note Canada's presence beyond the political um, strategy of having Canada back in peacekeeping. The fact that Canadian mining companies actually constitute the number one presence on the African continent in sub-Saharan African wow, countries, but especially in West Africa. So Canada's presence in Mali, in Burkina and in Niger especially is huge. And this explains the fact that Canada has actually become the first country uh, in the developed world to create what they've called government-led corporate social responsibility strategy in 2009. Uh, they've renewed it in, with some reforms to the strategy in 2014, uh, and it's supposed to also have some changes in 20. And this strategy actually shows, it comes from global affairs, how Canada is very much conscious of its interests. It's a lot of vested interests in the region. And so it is not, it's beyond an altruistic or peacekeeping mission to actually keep the region safe. Because as we've seen in January 2019, there's been a Canadian mining executive that has been kidnapped and killed. Before that, in December there's been allegations of kidnappings of um, an NGO worker from Quebec. And since 2014, actually, many Canadians have actually been killed in sporadic attacks, both in the north, but also in the capital city. So I think Canada actually has a huge interest in taking this very seriously and in looking at all the political economy aspects. I think the fact that the CSR strategy is set to be reassessed in 2019, this is a great opportunity to actually look into the security uh, connections and so the so-called development security nexus between the mining companies and how they actually contribute to destabilizing the region. Because what is happening, there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons to this growing insecurity. But one of them is that in the northern part of a place like Burkina Faso, for instance, which has notoriously been neglected by the government, and this is the case in the other Sahelian countries, a lot of those communities, especially rural communities, have been left to themselves and with mining companies coming to displace people from their 
hometowns um, and having a lot of these displaced people not having their livelihoods, access to their livelihoods, access to land anymore. They've actually been very easy targets um, for jihadist groups. They've also been very easy targets for inter-communitarian conflicts. So this is a huge responsibility for Canada to take on and to think about the wider strategy of how it can guide the mining companies to actually operate in Canada. Because at the end of the day, Canadian mining companies are multinational companies. They do not necessarily represent Canada. But what people see on the ground is Canadian mining companies. So they see Canada. So it's actually a reflection of the Canadian brand that has actually been very much tarnished from a peacekeeping good citizen country to a country that is bringing a lot of despair to actually a country that's bringing, exacerbating a lot of the issues in the region. So I think for me, it's important to think about the wider structural issues here. And finally, I would say that it's important to look at the local and national agency. The regional agency that's being spearheaded by the G5 Sahel is a huge commitment. But unfortunately, there's a lot of financial issues. There's a lot of capacity issues there. Uh, Defense Minister Sajjan has mentioned back in April 2018 that Canada has been helping in the Sahel region for some time. Unfortunately, it's not clear how long in, and in what capacity this will go on into the future. So I think there's a need for an actual wider long-term strategy for helping in the Sahel region. Wow, this is uh, fascinating. I really didn't realize we had such a great presence there. Can you give us a little bit of uh, names of companies? I mean, what are the Canadian companies that are active in, in the Sahel? I think it, on top of my head, I Am Gold is a specific <laughs> one. It is perhaps the biggest uh, Canadian mining company that's operating in all the regions um, in the Sahel. And they are actually very conscious of, uh, they being the mining companies, of their role uh, beyond just ex- exploiting uh, the minerals because they, they, they're very much conscious that there is a, a wider security issue, but there's also a growing resource nationalism among African countries. So there is an event actually happening on March 2nd in Toronto um, at the Sheraton where a huge number of the Canadian mining companies are targeting diasporic West African uh, citizens who are also Canadian (laughs) citizens for the most part or permanent residents to go back to these countries and work. And that actually highlights two things. One is the fact that a lot of the uh, West African mining uh, countries are now requiring a a bigger local content from Canadian mining companies because in the past it's been most of the executive and skilled labor comes from Canada and miners who are you know, the, the, the tougher, uh, so-called de-skilled, uh, labor come from the locals, but African companies are actually now requiring for there to be a substantial local content. So the way through which a lot of these companies are finding, uh, to get around that is to recruit people who are technically, so myself, for instance, I'm originally from Burkina Faso, I have dual citizenship. So, if I wanted to work for I Am Gold, I could go to this recruitment session. People can actually be hired on the spot and become perhaps an executive, become perhaps an executive through I Am Gold in Burkina Faso. So technically, I am a citizen of Burkina Faso, but technically I'm also a citizen of Canada. So that kind of circumvents the requirement of having local content while having Canadian experience. So there's a lot of issues there. But the other issue is also that with the growing insecurity, a lot of Canadians who are not citizens some of these African countries do not want to be there. Uh, and so in the past, in a country like Burkina Faso, for instance, it used to be so safe. It was very much um, an easy ride to get uh, top executives to go there. But right now, the insecurity is so huge that even uh, we have uh, warnings from global affairs to not travel 
to Burkina Faso unless there is it's 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 a must. But okay, a citizen from Burkina Faso, I would be happy to go to my country because I would consider it fairly safe and there are ways in which I could try and stay safe compared to someone who is not a local. So there's there's a lot, there's a lot there to actually unpack. And I think we actually need to start thinking about it from a political economy perspective and beyond the military strategy and looking into the wider economy. That's fascinating. I think that as a, I think someone who considers herself informed and, you know, follows this, I've certainly only seen it through that lens of the peacekeeping lens, you know, that we're going there for our own altruistic reasons to prevent this insurgency from spreading. And that's the narrative we get. Frankly, I'm ashamed to say I never knew that we had such strong economic interests in the region through our mining companies. Again, just admitting my own ignorance. And even on the peacekeeping mission, it is very uh, arguable what difference the Canadian contingent did have in Mali. So I think uh, by uh, Operation Presence, they supported the UN peacekeeping mission. But if you look at the situation in the Sahel, in Burkina Faso, Mali or Niger over the last five years, you've had had uh, more insurgency spreading across the whole territory. And a new dynamic has been uh, communitarian tensions between, let's say, farmers and herders communities due to the uh, fact that you have had over the last 50 years more population in the Sahel and less resources for uh, this population. You have uh, more problems for the government that are dealing with grappling with issues that are related to state building and nation building and the social fabric in many of those uh, commun- those societies in Burkina Faso, Mali and Niger is being teared apart by the, this insurgency. Well, and absolutely, and, and add to that, as Nadej noted, you know, the displacement of communities to make way for mines. I mean, you know, that is certainly going to create local grievances and that is that is not going to play well for state cohesion to development uh, obviously i'm sure in there is a lot of corruption because that is of course endemic in many developing countries too and so you have now also you know canadian actors involved and potentially very you know much big corrupt cases yeah it's it's a very interesting picture that you've you've portrayed for me abdi do you have something to add to that yeah no i think my peers are absolutely correct uh, in these cases and some of these uh, situations uh, you're going into places where there's no peace to keep uh, and these are long term long drawn out situations in which you have to really kind of connect development social security political security economic security into that and and no amount of troops on the ground no amount of interventions can help uh, fix a lot of the structural issues that a lot of my peers are talking about but i think there is a interest in making sure that some of these states don't fully collapse. I think despite the difficulty surrounding, despite the complicated context, and especially in a political economy context, uh, you have to want to or be interested in doing some level of, uh, even if it's just minimal engagement. So I think the Canadian government and a lot of Western governments are starting to understand that. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from the last few decades of the United Nations sponsored uh, peacekeeping mission. So it isn't necessarily amount of uh, Western or Canadian uh, peacekeeping or peacekeepers coming onto the ground there. It's a lot of supporting the missions that are on the ground from those little groups. So in the African Union peacekeeping context, a lot of the troops come from African Union countries. So those offer a little bit, a little bit more of a politically tenable uh, outcome. So the contexts are complicated, but I'm hoping and I think we can all agree on the table that there is going to be a closer, uh, sorry, that we're all hoping there's going to be a, uh, a more tenable uh, outcome in which all the people involved can kind of work together in a uh, concrete way. So, Abdel, let me just push you on that. What would you want Canadian policymakers to know? 
I would suggest that for Canadian policymakers, the most important thing is finding ways that Canada can offer specialized help, specialized operations, specialized support to existing peacekeeping missions. Again, it isn't a matter of doing a lot. It's a lot. It's about doing something small but impactful. Uh, so Canada has a highly trained police force, for example, and this is something that we're having a conversation actually right downstairs uh, with the Global Affairs Canada personnel. Uh, and uh, for example, police officers or civilian contributions are just one place in which we can help strengthen existing peacekeeping missions. Training is another one. Although the Canadian Peacekeeping Training Center has closed down, there's a number of training uh, centers that exist today that the Canadian government can help sponsor or help support even existing partnerships with sub-regional organizations like the African Union or even smaller organizations like the G5 Sahel. All of those have definitely a stronger outcome than just saying, okay, we're going to commit X amount of troops and we're going to be committed for X amount of years. So there are ways to be doing small but impactful efforts. And I think the Canadian government's starting to recognize that. So I want to switch gears because like the Middle East, I find it somewhat irritating when it's seen only through a prism of conflict because there's far more to a region than just conflict. So we're going to switch gears and talk about something a little happier and more interesting because, of course, Africa is a very dynamic continent. Uh, there's a lot going on. It is a place that is with a rising middle class, with high interconnectivity and loves their movies. So we are going to switch to talking about the 50th anniversary of the Pan-African Festival of African cinema, which is like the con equivalent in Africa. And it's not as, uh, as Nadej told me, not the cheesy Nollywood, that's the Nigerian Bollywood, low production. This is like the, the top, top tier of cinema. So let's switch gears a little bit because we need to remember the bright side of things and the, the post or non-conflict sector of uh, life in, in the African continent. Okay, so Nadej, tell us about this great festival. Thank you, Pesma. And yeah, I'm a lover of cinema and I have a love-hate relationship with Nollywood. I just want to say that I that think... The Middle East cinema, <laughs> although they're getting better thanks to some Gulf investment in production quality, but your typical Egyptian films, for example, yeah. you know, sorry, I know I'm going to get like a, a slew of emails from Egyptians who are, you know, but the, cla- you know, the, the typical ones are like the sound effects come after the punch and, you know, it, it's just, it's so bad. I think it's filmed in like nine days. There's no editing, no directorship. It's just raw. So I know what we're talking about, but there are high quality ones. Exactly. But the Nollywood love hate is because... There is a huge growth in Nollywood. I, I want to say that before going to the, the first cycle where we now have a lot of really high quality movies coming out of Nollywood. So we still have the terrible ones, but there is a lot of really good movies coming out of Nollywood. So there's a big old Nollywood and new Nollywood. So that said, I think the entire focus should be on the Fest- Pan-African Festival of African Cinema. The acronym is in French because it happens in Ouagadougou every two years. So it's the Festival Pan-African du Cinema de Ouagadougou. And it's at this 50th year this year. It's happening right now, actually, in Ouagadougou, unfortunately, under heavier surveillance and security measures than in the past because of the insecurity, rising insecurity in the country. However, it's important to know this 26th edition, and this is probably one of, if not the only truly Pan-African cultural event on the continent. I'm excluding football. I don't want to say soccer, but football <laughs> on, on the continent, because I think other than that sport, it's really rare to actually see Sub-Saharan Africa and Northern Africa come together so strongly. And what's really interesting about this festival is that it, it really has shown such an interest from all of the countries. We have Anglophone, Francophone, Lusophone countries who have won the Italon de Yenenga. It's like the biggest prize, which actually is the, the symbol of the country after our founding mother called Yenenga. So we actually have a founding mother. We have a founding mother story in the sense that this warrior who was 
a princess called Yenenga. It's actually the one who has founded one of the biggest groups in Burkina Faso, the Mosi people. So the, the trophy is a stallion. <laughs> so different countries, including Nigeria. So like I said, um, there's, there's good movies coming out of there, but it's been huge wins from Senegal specifically, especially from Samben Usman, who is both a novelist and a cinematographer. So what one other thing that's important to note about the festival is that since 2010, around 2010, there's been a bigger participation of women, which I think is really great and also highlights the fact that uh, one of the heroes of the Burkina Bay politics, Thomas Sankara, was a huge feminist. So it's it's too bad that it took that long to have the recognition for uh, female directors. But that's that's been happening. And this year, there's a lot of contention from a lot of these uh, female cinematographers. Also, since 2015, African diasporic directors can also participate and win if their movies are competitive enough, which didn't happen in the past. And I think this is a recognition of the contribution of diasporic bodies to the continent. I mean, the remittances for African diaspora has surpassed development aid in many places in Africa. So I think this is an all happy event all around. People should check out the FESPACO if they can, when they can. I don't know if there's access online, but this is probably the biggest event you would ever find on the continent as a whole. Fantastic. And Usman, a little, little sparkle in his eye when we said Senegal. So Yes, I think two years ago, it was won by Alain Gomis, who is one of the uh, best directors from Senegal. And I remember watching that movie, uh, Felicité, which was set in Congo, which is interesting. So you have a Senegalese director doing a movie about a Congolese woman who is trying to get by on her life. And it's a really beautiful movie. Felicité. Felicité. That is the name. I don't think it's available on Netflix, but you will see many African movies, not notably from, especially from uh, Nollywood on Netflix. And they are trying to get more African content yeah. in their platforms. I- I've noticed that as well as on Middle Eastern movies. I'm noticing yeah. some interesting additions to Netflix, including some fantastic Saudi films. Again, not expected to be, you know, great cinematography, but definitely something to watch. Okay. Well, you've given us a lot of food for thought. Uh, We've covered Canada and Mali, Canada's mining interest, and we always end off on lovely notes like movies. So thank you for this fantastic podcast, guys. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Thank you. And now let's turn to Dr. John Ravenhill, the director of the Balsley School of International Affairs. John, why should people come here? Well, thank you, Besma, and, and, and thank you to you and Matthew for all of your work on these podcasts, which have become an important part of the school's activities. The Balsley School of International Affairs is, I think most people would now acknowledge, one of Canada's leading providers of graduate education in international affairs and global governance. The school offers three master's programs, a Master of Arts in Global Governance, a Master of International Public Policy, and a joint Master of International Public Policy MBA, Master of Business Administration program, and also a PhD program in global governance. So we welcome your engagement with the school and for potential students, please do check out our programs and we hope to see you here in the future.